This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi Williams, and this is the Cinderella Peacocks Sports Business Podcast, The Sportacast. Yeah, you know, uh, I don't live too far, Mr. Novi Williams, as you know, here in New Jersey, northern Jersey. I don't live too far from Jersey City, and I think I might have heard the eruption, right? (laughs) I think I might have heard something when St. Francis, no, St. Peter's, moves on after Kentucky, but then they win another game, and we have a 15 seed into the Sweet 16. Yeah, it feels like every year, Scott, we get one of these, but this is a kind of feels like a, an especially historic one. If, if you think about financially, as we do here at, at Sportico and on the Sportacast, the amount of money that St. Peter's spends on basketball, $1.6 million is their men's basketball budget. They beat Kentucky, as you mentioned. Kentucky spends $18.3 million annually on basketball. That's such a massive discrepancy, almost 12x from one to the other, such a huge difference there in spending, which I think, and, and, and correct me if you think I'm wrong. I think that's one of the things that is so appealing about the NCAA tournament. It's one of kind of the rare places in American sports where there's such a big kind of mismatch between prestige history finances, and it plays out on the field, much like you see in Europe with things like the FA cup. I got to tell you, and you know, I, I relish any opportunity to tell you you're wrong, but I can't hear. But my knee-jerk reaction, and, and this is, you know, I guess, I, I, do I say pathetic or how good? I don't know. But the minute the game's over, I'm like calling up the Sportico NCA database because I want to go look and see how much <laughs> revenue does Kentucky, right? And what does yeah. Calipari make, right? I mean, I love looking at that too. What, what's Cal's salary? And then you go look at Shaheen Holloway, speaking of New Jersey, former Seton Hall player, you know, what does he get paid? And then you look ahead and say, what's he going to get paid, right? Seton Hall may have a job open. So everything about it in the college world, there's such a financial mismatch. Meantime, was it you or the great Lev Akabas who put out there on Twitter, like, if you look at the baseball world, this is just Yankees versus Orioles. Yeah, that, right? that was me. Yeah, the, the, the spending gap here, eerily similar to what the Orioles and the Mets are spending right now in terms of the, their salary cap for opening day in 2022. Uh, so I, I think that's a great point, Scott, because I do think it's especially interesting that in, in one sport, these things feel like they're massive upsets. And then in baseball, we have just become accustomed to two teams that could very easily play each other that are spending this differently. And and that's obviously the difference between sports with a salary cap and sports without a salary cap. Um, but it, it, in, it would be insane for us to think that Kentucky and St. Peter's could be in the same conference, right? 
that seems just just silly and and foolish. But again, in in baseball, we have these two teams competing in the same league uh, on an annual basis. I do think that's kind of and it's it's obviously not apples to apples in some ways because we're talking about wider than just player spending here. But yeah, I do think it is interesting that in in some sports, what feels like a massive discrepancy in spending, which which it is to be clear between Kentucky and St. Peter's in 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 baseball, we get these kind of massive discrepancies probably every week in terms of some showdown. Yeah. And did I see a note that St. Peter's didn't have enough money in the budget to send the cheerleaders to the next round? Right. So I think NBC and Peacock you know, got him a bus, <laughs> which, which I love what we couldn't, you couldn't get a plane, but anyway, I know you're doing something nice, but throw him on the bus. So to much, there's so much little stuff here that is fun. The, the best way that I think I can describe how out of place St. Peter's is here is that Shaheen Holloway makes less than the president of St. Peter's. Um, and, and that, as you know, is, uh, is fairly rare when it comes to, uh, when it comes to college basketball very often. And I would bet that that maybe everybody else in the sweet 16 playing here has a basketball coach that's making more than the university president. So th- there's a lot of different ways. And you mentioned Calipari there, Scott, Kentucky spent $10 million on its athletic coaching staff last year. That's significantly more than the entire uh, St. Peter's athletic budget for all the sports in an entire year, just to kind of put a perfect bow on just how big the discrepancy is between some of the haves in this sport and the have-nots that are, at least in this kind of very small, uh, narrow time frame, uh, outperforming them. Can I go on the fan first time, long time right now? Can I do Please. that? I mean, just yes. a, I, are, are we overdoing it? I know these big boys get the better recruits, I know. But when now that we've gotten so far into the one and done, and I mean, I just think it's a different game when you're, let's say, three, four, or five, five-star recruits if you get Grant Hill and Christian Leitner, Thomas Hill, whoever else was on that, Bobby Hurley, speaking of New Jersey, when you get this group of five-star recruits that stayed for four years back in the yesteryear, that's a monumental upset when you get the best of the best and they were all together. But even at Duke now, it's no guarantee that you have one, two, three first-round draft picks anymore. These other schools, perhaps the recruit's not as highly touted, but they do stay three, four years together. That's a great equalizer. Like, I, I don't care who you are. They're still college kids. If they're freshmen or they're sophomores, it's not the same as playing four or five seniors. And that is a great equalizer. Have we made too much? And we've had the debate so many times, Evan, and I love this, about what's more powerful, the brand of the school or the brand of the player. But man, it really does tell you something. And I know they had good records and they deserve to be you know, one seeds and two seeds. I get it. But the enduring brand power of Kentucky basketball, Duke basketball, how much just inherent bias is there and that that's a power program, it's a power this or that without a real evaluation of how good is this team? I think it's a really good question, Scott, because it it does certainly feel as though if you look at the way the business of college sports is changing in the past five years and trying to think about what's going to happen in the next five years, the gap between the haves and the have-nots is only going to get wider, especially because of the way football is is schisming uh, from the, the kind of the current groups and conferences that we have right now. Kentucky is only going to be a bigger, uh, j- just a bigger financial behemoth relative to St. Peter's moving forward. And that's because Kentucky is an SEC school with an SEC football program. Um, so, so in some ways, it should be that the haves are separating themselves from the have-nots. Financially, everything is moving in that direction. But 
the opposite, which is what you said, is also true, which is that if you look historically at the NCAA basketball tournament, the lower seeds, the ones that are more likely to be your mid-majors, your schools like St. Peter's, are doing better than they ever have been historically in this tournament. So, so we are getting both of those two things simultaneously, a separation of the have and have nots and the have nots also doing better in the basketball tournament than they ever have. I think that's super fascinating. I think that you are probably right in that the one and done and the, the change of the way that the high end talent stays at schools, I think is certainly uh, a factor here. I can think of maybe one or two other things that, that, that might be uh, might be playing a role here in, in, in some ways, but it is an interesting dichotomy. I think for sure, this idea that as the rich are getting richer and richer, uh, at least in, in one corner of the college sports world at basketball, albeit a very high profile one, those smaller schools are actually starting to perform better than they ever have been. Yeah, and by the way, on the women's side, we've seen plenty of upsets, which I think is great for the game. Which is rare, super. Because rare. yeah, I, I mean, how tired can you be of seeing you know Baylor and and UConn Stanford, and Tennessee yeah. back in the day, Stanford, right? The fact that anybody is, is upsetting number ones and twos and threes, whatever it may be, that's fantastic. Now I you know now I show more interest because I don't know who's going to win. Here's an interesting one for you, just staying on St. Peter's for a second, because you live in New Jersey. Uh, if you were a St. Peter's fan in New Jersey and you wanted to bet on the Peacocks to win in the Sweet 16, or to, if you had an idea they were going to beat Kentucky, you would not have been able to through legal channels. The New Jersey was has been a legal sports betting state uh, essentially since since the moment the Supreme Court uh, overturned uh, the the federal ban a number of years ago. But New Jersey is also one of those states. New York is is another one where you're not allowed to gamble on your local teams. That is a rule that was put in place. In some ways, or, or, or the motivation, Scott, was they kind of wanted to separate the schools from the pressures of having local people gambling on their games, which I think you can maybe understand on, on one hand. On the other hand, anyone who lives in New Jersey who's captivated by St. Peter's and wants to gamble on them now has to do it in, in an unregulated market of some sort. They have to find a bookie. They have to go offshore. Uh, it certainly feels to me... Like that is a rule that is achieving maybe the opposite uh, goal yeah. of what legalizing sports betting is. But I do think it's interesting now that that as St. Peter's continues this run, people in New Jersey, even people in Jersey City where St. Peter's is located, are unable to open their phones and gamble on the peacocks. And that seems actually kind of problematic to me. Can I hop on the PATH train, the Port Authority Trans Hudson, and go to whatever it be, Newport Pavonia, or this stop World Trade Center, get out, come up from underground and place my bet? Yeah, you can do the reverse commutes. All those yeah. New Yorkers that spent some time yep. going into New Jersey to get you, their you bets included. down. You included. Me included over the past couple of years. Now, if you're in New Jersey and you want to get your bets down on Rutgers and St. Peter's, you you have to come back across to, to New York to do it. Um, yeah, it just seems like a kind of an interesting quirk of, of the sports betting laws. One that's actually become fairly popular in other states. Again, you, you can't bet on Syracuse games here in New York. Um, yeah, I just think that that is a, a, kind of an interesting wrinkle of, of this run that I think is maybe not getting as much attention as it should. I'm sorry. I know it's my alma mater, but uh, why did you bring up Syracuse when discussing the NCAA tournament? That's, <laughs> I, I, I did not see orange anywhere there. Was there was a time, Scott. There was a time when that would <laughs> yeah. be in a, a relevant Hello, uh, Sherman Douglas and Derek Coleman. Should, nice should to I have meet said you. Colgate instead? <laughs> there, there you go. Adonal Foyle and Colgate. Wonderful stuff. Um, and by the way, this would be a, a really good case study on the whole notion of sports as front porch. 
We've yeah. seen, you know, Apex Marketing says they're getting, you know, tens of millions of dollars in exposure. That's great. I'm curious to see what that does for applications. In-state, out-of-state, are people now going to look at St. Peter's, uh, you know, what are visits to the website? Will they get increased, at least application and interest in the school because this basketball team is making so much noise? Yeah, it's especially interesting, I think, for St. Peter's. Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe St. Peter's is a largely commuter school, right? And I, th- yeah. I think that because that's true that will change the calculus a little bit. There's probably not too many people who don't want to go to a commuter school that are looking at the the peacocks in the national tournament and going, Oh, maybe I should consider doing that. I I think that kind of the on-campus experience is maybe a little different at St. Peter's than you might get at other schools. And that may be a factor here. Um, But yes, I think it is certainly interesting. We talked about this last year with Oral Roberts, uh, which was the, the Cinderella of the, of the 2021 tournament. And, and, And really every year you get a sense of, 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 of what this looks like. But even if it doesn't drive a huge increase in applications, there's no way that this isn't both extremely valuable for the university and two worth the investment that they put into. I mean, again, we're talking a $1.6 million annual men's basketball budget and a $7 million athletics budget overall, that this can't be a bad thing in any capacity uh, f- for either of those numbers. Well, no, not for those numbers. The only bad thing is now they have to pay Shaheen Holloway, and that's going to be a very difficult thing to do. Or they have to lose Shaheen Holloway. Or they have to maybe, lose. Maybe the, yeah. more likely, uh, the more likely end Absolutely. I don't do a lot of shout-outs, but how about the Ohio State women's hockey team winning the national championship? You see any of that? My favorite part of it is sort of right in the middle of it. There, there's Gene Smith, the athletic director, celebrating on the ice. You yeah. know, he's got he's got a mega football team, a mega basketball mm-hmm. team, and there he is celebrating with with the women's hockey team in the championship. I, I, I'd love to see it. The the success of the, the the a lot of the Big Ten programs that maybe were not hockey powerhouses a while ago. So I'm kind of separating out the Michigans and the Michigan States. I think is a really interesting college hockey story overall, right? And and Penn State we talk about as as a, as a program that didn't ex- didn't exist. In, in, in men's and women's hockey uh, a decade ago, thanks to the Pakulas, got up and running, spent a lot of time in the last few years as the number one ranked team in the country. Uh, college hockey, much like we've seen in college lacrosse, Scott, is spreading out around the country and popping up at these programs that we're talking about, these blue bloods, these haves, the ones who have 150 plus million dollar annual athletic departments. Really interesting to see them finding some success as well. Yeah, like you mentioned, you know, Terry and Kim Pagula donated a $90 million arena. That'll do it. You know, if I'm a recruit, that there's helps. only so many yeah, to go around. If I see it. this $90 million facility at Penn State, I got to think, you know, I may want to go and do this. That looks yeah. pretty good. Women's lacrosse, Florida kind of very quickly became an absolute powerhouse in that world because they had money to dedicate to it and they had the resources to make that program uh, one of the best in the country in, in a very short amount of time. Um, and again, I think that you're going to start seeing that more and more in, in, in hockey as well. By the way, just for March Madness, and I want to bring up my focus group of one because what would a show be without my focus group of one? He's, <laughs> he's not watching it at all. Like, like maybe a big one. I tell him, oh, you know, St. Peter's beat Kentucky. Oh, really? And he doesn't know what that means. He's like, okay. <laughs> you know, he's not sitting down. He doesn't know brackets. He doesn't. If we had done the brackets, I think he'd be interested in it. Um, probably too emotionally invested, frankly, but without absent the bracket, he just doesn't seem to care all that much. So here, it's an interesting one. I've got two questions on that. One, do you think that the, that more, uh, accessible, uh, state by state legal sports betting is going to hurt bracket participation? No, I think it's a, it's a separate thing. No, I think going for money is one thing. Uh, going for bragging rights at your office or among your friends is a totally different. You still want to have that communal experience with with friends and family. So I have found, at least me personally, that I am way less interested in brackets now that if I want to, I can gamble on any of the games. 
Right. That feels like it is kind of replaced a lot of like the, 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 the itch that I wanted to scratch with brackets. The second question I have, which is another kind of interesting dichotomy to me is that I, I think that, that Jack, your, your son is not alone in that the, the buzz around this year's NCAA tournament doesn't seem like it's been as big as it has been in years past. It does certainly seem as though there's fewer household name stars in, in, in men's men's college basketball than there have been in the past. Um, and I find that interesting because this is the first year that college athletes have been able to market themselves. And those two things seem like they should be opposite that, that if college athletes can do more to market themselves, they should be bigger household names than they ever have been. I have at least been wrestling a bit with that uh, as I watch this tournament, whether I think that that is just the cyclical nature of some years you have a, a Zion Williamson and some years you don't, or if there is kind of something larger happening at play in which the, the, the idea of, high school or college basketball players being names that every sports fan knows may be changing as well. Yeah. Well, uh, let's see how, uh, by the way, Sportico CEO, Dick Glover continues to do it uh, on his women's bracket. You know, Emily Karen, who did our brackets just said he's doing really well on like, even among us, it's but like among nationally like, the ranked, world, yeah, like, yeah. You know, like 500 and like all the millions that filled out ESPN brackets. There's Dick Glover standing tall. Well, way to go, Dick. Let me see. Let me see if it continues. Uh, I can, I can make Rob Manford very happy though with my uh, focus group of one. This, all the players on the move, he is fascinated. Like I said to him, I guess the tr- Trevor story was kind of later, whenever. Yeah. Um, and I said to him, hey, Jay, is, uh, is Trevor story a good player? He, he looked at me like I was an idiot. He's like, you don't know who Trevor story is? I'm like, not really. He's like, he's really good. I said, well, he's going to the Red Sox. He's like, no way. I'm like, but he's going to play second base. I, <laughs> no, yeah, but he's going to play second base. He's like, oh, but that makes sense because then he went into it. So very excited for the hot stove league. He's, That's he's, so interesting that your son doesn't watch baseball at all. Only kind of interacts with the game from a video game standpoint. Video game standpoint. And now, is still yep. that interested in what teams players are on, which in some way, I guess if you're playing by strict rosters in video games, it matters. But in some ways, video games have kind of torn down that as importance in a lot of ways as well. I find that fascinating. It's, it's, it's allowed us to actually to communicate a little better. Like when, when Dahlbeck hit the, uh, the first home run of spring training, I saw it on Twitter. I texted him. He was in school. I was like, Daddy Dahlbeck with the homer, first one of the spring. And he, and he just comes back like, look at you knowing him. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, every now and then I can do something. Well. All right, uh, nice. Chelsea, give me, give me the latest on Chelsea. We, we broke a story um, yesterday. Chelsea, and this doesn't surprise me, at least, we don't have the exact number, but sources tell us at least 15 bids, and we knew how much interest there was, but at least 15 bids have come in for the EPL team. And uh, some folks were adjusting their bids throughout the weekend, hearing what some other, other groups were doing. We've heard some of the big names that are involved, US owners like Vivek Renadive, um, Todd Bowley, um, Josh Harris, and all trying to kind of make a nice spiffy package of their bid group with with famous and well-heeled Euros and, and, you know, and Brits trying to make their bid group look so attractive to uh, perhaps the government that may be ultimately deciding who gets the team. So 15, that means there's a whole bunch of names we don't know. And man, I'm really interested because, you know, fight and claw to get who they are and, and expose because I'm fascinated as to what this sale has drawn. What's the phrase we always say on this show? More bidders, more bidders, more money, more money, uh, having 15 bidders, uh, in the early stages here uh, is such a massive number I, for folks who, who Scott maybe aren't exactly aware for NFL teams. How many are we usually do we three, two, four? three? Yeah. Yeah. Two, yeah, three. It's, it's, right. it's essentially a five X, the amount of interested. Um, and, and I mentioned that, that more bidders, more money thing here. 
because it, it, as we talked about last week on the show, the the money is not as relevant here as it as it has been in other sales. Roman Abramowitz, who's selling the team, has hinted that he's going to donate all the proceeds to uh, some form of foundation that is going to go to pass the money along to victims in Ukraine. And we don't um, even know if he's going to get to do that. Like we don't even we know. We don't even know if we he's going to get We have no get idea where the that. proceeds of this sale are going to go. Right. The, so, so again, we have this sale now where, uh, where, where the, the, the person selling the team is, is totally price agnostic. I, I think that is, again, is, is totally fascinating here, but it certainly does seem if you're just looking at the, the, the valuation on the club, uh, based on whoever gets this team, it certainly feels like it's going to be pretty high. We valued Kurt Bodenhausen, our, our valuations expert, put the team at $3.35 billion uh, about six or seven months ago when he did his numbers, Scott. I'm, I'm sure it's the same for you. I've talked to people that think the team is barely worth half of that. I've talked to people that think the team is going to sell for a billion dollars on top of that. Um, it does certainly at least seem right now, 15 interested bidders, that we may see numbers on the higher end of that spectrum as, a, as opposed to the lower. I'm going to tell it as one banker said to me this very morning. If you win the bid, did you lose? It's an interesting question because as we know, the way it's being operated right now by Roman Abramovich, he's losing 150 to $200 million a year owning Chelsea. And he's willing to do it because he has the money. It's a passion play. That's fine. However, is that sustainable? And if not, if you do cut the spending on players, does Chelsea remain big six? Do they win? Do they make Champions League? Are they that dominant global brand that they are right now? I do not know. So much of what we talk about on this show is is essentially kind of predicated on this, this major unanswerable question about whether franchise valuations are going to continue to rise in the next 10 to 15 years as they have in the last 10 to 15 years. And as you know, Scott, if, if you buy Chelsea right now for $4 billion and you lose $100 million a year for the next decade, and then sell it for four point or sell it for five point five billion dollars. You end up ahead, right? You, you you've lost a significant nine figure chunk every year, and and at the end of that ten years of or fifteen years of owning it, you, you've ended up plus a couple hundred million dollars. Uh, so yeah, I think the it, it, we, we won't know right for a very long time whether whoever wins this auction uh, is the winner or the or, or the biggest loser until we get a sense of how expensive it remains to compete. At the European soccer level, theoretically, if uh, it becomes harder and harder for people with unlimited funds, and I'm talking sovereign wealth funds and 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 and, and Russian oligarchs, for example, if it becomes harder and harder for them to buy in to, to to this level, does does the level level off? Do the teams that do have that that backing do they kind of push the envelope even further to separate themselves? There's so much kind of interesting economic unknowns right now in European soccer because, as we've talked about. There is no salary cap. Chelsea has no idea in five years what it's going to have to pay for talent because it just doesn't know where the market is going to be set for the top, top tier talent that they need, the, the people they have to hire if they do want to compete for Champions League titles and for, for Premier League titles. And let's keep in mind that with these sophisticated investors and owners that sometimes having a loss in one property is not the worst thing to offset gains elsewhere. I, I did not take you know accounting 303, <laughs> But I have listened and learned over the years that there are many deductions that one can take as owner of a team, including one's spouse or one's kids, how much time, like a certain amount of time if they devote. And by the way, just sitting and watching the game counts as time devoted to the team that one can deduct. So let's, you know, let's not forget that that is also an aspect. Finally, uh, let's talk about Deshaun Watson because 
if Chelsea is going to be a watershed sale, or the Denver Broncos is going to be a watershed moment and sale, this Deshaun Watson contract guaranteed $250 million. This is, as I said, when it first happened, I'm like, what did he switch to the NBA? Like, <laughs> like, like, is this what the, like, when did Deshaun Watson leave the NFL and become an NBA player? Because that's the kind of contract it is. Yeah, it's, it's, I've been listening to you, Scott, for, for 10 plus years talk about how it's not that NFL players can't sign fully guaranteed deals. Kurt Cousins did it. It's that they just don't really get the opportunity to do it that often. Yep. Um, and this is another Kurt Cousins. Sure. This is Deshaun Watson is another example of if the time is right, if the team wants you enough, if you are a good enough on-field talent, if the stars align for you, uh, there is an option as an NFL player to sign a deal like this. I think the, the the major question here, or one of the major questions here is how sustainable is this? Does this market a change in which if I'm the next superstar quarterback, am I demanding anything less? Can, do I have the leverage to ask for anything less? I think the same would go for any other position at this point. It, do, are, are we nearing a sea change in which more and more NFL players are getting guaranteed deals, which has kind of been a, a thing that has set the NFL apart from all the other major leagues here in the U.S., um, at least from a player compensation standpoint? Well, you know that teams oftentimes don't trust each other and don't want to do business together. We, you know, we've covered that. Uh, I'm willing to guess that this is something when all the owners meet at their next meeting, they're going to push the Haslam's out of the room and say, okay, we need to come up with our talking <laughs> points for the next quarterback as to why that contract does not make sense and why we are not going to match the next time. That this was such a special time, team, player, leverage, whatever it may be. That, it, that, that those facts do not compute to the next quarterback, whoever it may be. They just need to get their collective talking points down because you're right. Everybody, you can bet every other owner in the league let out a very big growl. And, oh, like this is not going to be good for us. And, and we should also mention that Deshaun Watson, obviously an extremely talented football player. This is not a signing that, that is not without some sort of risk just because of the the legal stuff hanging over him. There's yeah. 25 women have accused him of, of various forms of sexual assault slash harassment. There's, I believe, 22 of them are moving forward with civil lawsuits. He just returned from a grand jury where he was not indicted for any of those things on, on the criminal side. Um, and, and the contract appears like it was framed in a way in which expecting if he is suspended, a suspension, expecting yeah, a suspension. He, yes. And, and making that suspension as, as, as small palatable as possible, as, as palatable as possible for him. Um, I do think it is, it is fascinating that a, an athlete with this much off field baggage and this much risk when it comes to potentially what legal and league wide penalties may be coming his way as a result of his off-field actions, that this is the player that ends up with the most guaranteed money in NFL uh, contract history. Seems like it sets an even more leverage point if I'm the next quarterback that doesn't have this kind of risk, right? It's it's not as though this is the most slam dunk signing in, in NFL history. In fact, I would argue that it is in many ways kind of the opposite. All right. Well, just to explain what you had just rightfully said, Huge signing bonus, but anticipating some sort of NFL suspension, probably, you know, everyone's, I hear six games, six games, whatever it may be, next year. So the Browns structured his next year's salary to be $1 million. So that is the least that he could be impacted uh, over the course of the contract. He's going to get the boatload of the money, barring any other unforeseen problems. So... 
You had it right. Anyway, he is Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I'm Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. Our producer is Matt Whitehurst. Thank you very much, Matt. Our social media editor is Cora Veltman. She loves it when I remind you that the show can be found at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will soon become the Sportico Media Network.